Hey, this is Dr. Brian Mole, and today we'll be mapping diabetes subtypes on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Dr. Brian Mole. Dr. Brian Mole is the founder and medical director of Sweet Life Diabetes Health Centers and serves clients worldwide as the diabetes coach. He is a certified diabetes care and education specialist, mastered licensed diabetes educator, and is certified to practice functional medicine by the Institute for Functional Medicine. For over 20 years, Dr. Mole has been helping people around the world to optimize their health and metabolism, control blood sugar, and reverse type 2 diabetes using a natural, personalized lifestyle approach. In addition, he is the host of the number one rated Mastering Blood Sugar podcast and author of the upcoming book, The Pro-Fast Diet, Burn Fat and Reverse Type 2 Diabetes in Just Six Weeks. Dr. Brian, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm excited to have this time with you. Andrea, thank you so much. Excited to be here. This is going to be a really great discussion, so excited to dive in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long time coming, actually, and your expertise is so needed by this community. I'm wondering, Dr. Brian, in order to get us started and moving into the subtypes that you've developed to explain type 2 diabetes and effective treatment strategies. Can you first summarize the distinction between type one and type two to ensure that we're all on the same page with those physiological distinctions? Absolutely, and I think it's important to understand this when we talk about the subtypes or subgroups because this is really the genesis of how these subgroups came to be. So for many years, diabetes was considered to be a juvenile onset and adult onset diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so juvenile onset obviously was uh, kids developing diabetes, usually before the age of, of 18 or maybe 20, 21. And then adult onset was later in life. And they correlated pretty closely with type 1, type 2. But those lines have become blurred in the last several decades, where now we have adults developing type 1 diabetes, and I'll explain again in just a second the differences, and we have children, which is very sad, developing type 2 diabetes now um, in adolescence, and even even pre-10, which is scary. So uh, type 1 is an autoimmune disease, similar to other autoimmune conditions like 
lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, where our immune system is triggered to attack our own self-tissue or healthy tissue. In this case, the uh, little cells in the pancreas called the beta cells, which produce insulin. And sometimes there's some collateral damage into other parts of the pancreas. And there's actually four or five different antibodies which are present in autoimmune diabetes, depending on what the immune system is going after. But the end result is no insulin production or very little insulin production from the beta cells. And therefore, uh, a absolute requirement for exogenous or injected or snorted insulin, depending on the product. And if uh, obviously people with type 1 diabetes don't get that insulin, they essentially cannot store energy. So they metabolize all their fat and muscle and wither away into nothing but skin and bones and die. Their organs eventually shut down. So type 1 diabetes can be very tragic. Before the 1920s, there was no treatment, so they would often die. And we often see this in, in conjunction with other autoimmune conditions. Isn't that right? A sort of poly-autoimmune state? Right. Particularly Hashimoto's and celiac, yep. you know, which, mm -hmm. which again, often those, there's some... Uh, you know, comorbidities in those as well. So yeah, definitely a lot of uh, correlation between various autoimmune conditions, particularly the ones that seem to have food triggers, pro food mm -hmm. protein triggers and, and uh, type one, or I should say autoimmune diabetes is one of them. Now type two, totally different condition, oftentimes wish that it didn't even share the same last name, but uh, type two diabetes is a metabolic condition. It's actually sort of, I look at it as the pinnacle of metabolic dysfunction. And so what happens in type 2 diabetes is the body cannot properly metabolize fuel. So that's sugar and fat typically. And so blood sugar rises, blood fats rise, particularly triglycerides, and uh, the body becomes uh, over fat, uh, there's a strong correlation to fatty liver disease, and then that fat and the sh sugar starts causing damage throughout the body to the brain, to the heart, to the vascular system, to our extremities, to our organs, and the body uh, starts to develop complications. So type 2 diabetes, you'll often hear, is related to insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So here you're making insulin. In fact, most of the time, people with type 2 diabetes are making extra insulin, so they're making large amounts of insulin, but the cells, particularly the cells in the liver muscles and sometimes fat, is not responding to insulin, so we don't get the glucose uh, into the cells through the GLUT4 receptors or GLUT2 uh, receptors or channels. And therefore, our, you know, we don't have that energy to, we don't have that fuel to create energy in the mitochondria. And uh, it builds up in the bloodstream, so we get high blood sugar and high fat levels. And so that's largely due to insulin resistance. So the end result to both type 1 and type 2 is often high blood sugar. 
But that's about all they share in common. Uh, the whole the mechanism is completely different. Yeah, so well articulated. You said one thing that I want to uh, just ask you to explain a bit more. You use the term over fat. And I know there's a lot of consciousness these days about body positivity and how we look at the body without shame. When you say over fat, you're talking more about this process where the sugar does bathe the organs and the organs become fatty, not necessarily the individual becoming visually, quote unquote, fat or overweight. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, many times that is, in fact, the case. Now, if you if you really examine the body, you can oftentimes, you can see this visually, but in, in most cases, but not always. And oftentimes with clothes on, you wouldn't be able to tell someone had type 2 diabetes. They would almost look, you know, sort of just normal weight. And many of them are normal weight according to like BMI scales and so forth. Uh, so, and, and when I say over fat, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about someone's appearance. I'm not right. trying to be derogatory here. This is, um, I'm really just speaking from a more of a medical perspective that there's too much fat accumulation, particularly in and around the organs. And that's the what, what I call angry fat. That's the inflammatory fat that seems to drive insulin resistance and metabolic disease. Yeah, really well articulated. So when we get into the different subtypes or subcategories, how have you found those two, well, let's first define them and then look at how that might actually inform our recommendations or treatments. Yeah, so interestingly, about 10 years ago, I, I broke down type 2 into four different groups. And so we were using a model that is a little bit different than what I'm using now, but it was essentially we were trying to get to the what's the driver of insulin resistance. So, you know, there are people who were... Uh, sort of normal weight or actually a little on the lean side. There were people who were clearly had too much fat accumulation, whether you could measure that through lab tests or appearance. Then there were stress drivers and hormone drivers. And I think that was useful. But uh, in 2018, a study came out in Lancet Journal, which is a, a very prestigious a British medical journal, and they, I, it caught my eye because we were kind of doing this and it was called novel subgroups of adult onset diabetes and their association with outcomes. It was a data-driven cluster analysis. So they took tens of thousands of hospital records and basically they said, you know, type one, type two diabetes isn't all that useful. There's just much more to it than that. Mm -hmm. So uh, what they did is reanalyzed all the data, all the findings, and they said, there's actually five subgroups here and not, not two. And so subgroup one or what I call type A is autoimmune diabetes. And that includes both type 1 and something called LADA, which is latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood. So in both of those groups, you have positive antibodies for, uh, for diabetes, and there's several different antibodies. The most common is uh, GAD65, GAD65, which is related to GABA, 
It's an enzyme um, that's involved with uh, insulin in the pancreas. So GAD65 autoantibody will be positive in about 80% of people with autoimmune diabetes. There's another one called islet cell antibody, which is positive in about 80% of people with type 2 diabetes, or I'm sorry, with uh, autoimmune diabetes. Mm -hmm. So we'll usually run those two. There are other, there's a zinc transporter autoantibody, there's a... uh, there's uh, insulin antibody, so there's several others, but those are the main two that correlate the best. And so these folks are going to have positive antibodies, usually going to be uh, normal weight or underweight because they're under, you know, they're not producing insulin or enough insulin on their own. And it's an autoimmune disease, so it, it really needs to be treated as an autoimmune condition. And the only difference between type one and LADA or latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood is that LADA does happen later in life, as the name implies, and it's also much more slowly progressing. So in someone with type one diabetes, usually children, they'll get diagnosed and they went from normal to a blood sugar of three, four, five hundred, withering away, sometimes within months. Right. So it, it happens very quickly. It's a very uh, aggressive attack on the pancreas. And, uh, you know, the triggers are somewhat studied, but largely unknown. And they need insulin treatment immediately. Someone with LADA, this could happen over a five, 10 year period or longer. So it's a slow, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a Hashimoto's type presentation. It's a very slow uh, breakdown, slow destruction of the uh, beta cells and oftentimes missed. Uh, LADA almost always gets missed by conventional physicians. That's type A. There's four others which Mm -hmm. would fit into what we would normally call type 2. And so just review them real quick and then if you want to dive deeper, we can. So uh, the second group I call type D. That's an insulin deficiency it's still type 2. There's no autoimmune, but it's a, it's a deficiency, not making enough insulin. There's type R, which is the sort of the classic insulin resistance type. And uh, type O, which is the overweight or obese type. And this is where uh, obesity or overweight or overfat is really the primary driver Uh, the primary issue. And then there's type M, which is uh, mixed. And so these people typically are somewhat insulin resistant. They have a mildly elevated blood sugar, and uh, they are usually not significantly overweight and typically older. Um, Interestingly, this is the largest group. It's almost 40% of people with any type of diabetes have this type M. So the blood sugar is, you know, high, but not sky high. They uh, are typically normal weight or kind of look normal. And and they have some insulin resistance, but it's not real severe. So it's sometimes hard to spot. And these are the ones that are often confused. How did I end up with diabetes? You know, I, I mm-hmm. you know, I eat a pretty good diet. I exercise. You know, how did this happen to me? And that's actually the largest group 
Mm, yeah. So interesting. This is really fascinating. And what I love about it, Dr. Ryan, is it actually brings us beyond the diagnosis, which is what functional medicine and functional nutrition are really about. It's what root cause is really about. But we've kind of gotten stuck in that root cause is an X for Y that includes different testing or nutraceuticals based on a diagnosis. But what you're showing us is that there's a lot of information in the subtypes that help us to address things. And it, it really speaks to hormone function oh, and yeah. physiology because there's so much that happens with hormone production and utilization and metabolization that gets overlooked in all of these areas where hormones are concerned. I have so many questions about where we go next, but my first question I want to make sure to get in, Dr. Brian, is about differences that you might have seen in your practice or in your research in relation to gender, race, socioeconomics, do people fall into these different subtypes based on uh, different life factors or antecedents? Yeah, somewhat. Uh, so, you know, first of all, diabetes uh, is colorblind. It will, yeah. it will affect anybody and everybody. Uh, there are genetic factors, but they're more commonly not associated specifically with uh, race or, or uh, heritage or background. They oftentimes will show up in relationship to body physiology. So, you know, the genes that code for the leptin receptor, for example, or the genes that code for the hormone GLP-1, which is a, is a gut hormone that's involved with blood sugar regulation or uh, the genes that determine how we store fat and uh, like the ApoE mm -hmm. gene is, is one that's associated with diabetes. So there's, there's many of these physiological traits that can be tied back to our genome that I haven't found clear, you know, segments of, of you know, the population have one or more of these. So, mm -hmm. so that, that is interesting, but uh, there, are, there also are some... Uh, differences. So, for example, people from South Asian descent, in particular, have a seem to have a lower personal fat threshold, which is how much subcutaneous fat they they store before that fat starts getting uh, laid down in the organs like the liver and in the muscles and in the viscera. So, oftentimes, there's something called the Asian paradox. So the the, the diabetes rates in these cultures is very high despite obesity being mm -hmm. fairly low. So they don't really get what we consider to be classically obese. They don't accumulate a lot of fat on their frame, uh, but they will very quickly start storing fat in, their, in and around the organs, which will interfere with blood sugar regulation and fat regulation and uh, lead to diabetes. So they'll, they'll become diabetic much more quickly and at a much lower weight than, say, people from European descent. African-Americans tend to be more inclined to obesity-related diabetes. So we'll see you know, if there's poor dietary factors there and they become overweight or obese, that will usually be a, a primary driver for them to then move into diabetes but that's about it. There's not really a whole mm -hmm. lot of other clear data as far as, 
you know, uh, heritage and how that relates to, to diabetes. Just one more group is um, sometimes Native cultures, like Native Americans, uh, sort of famously at this point, um, have a lot of these genes for diabetes, but they weren't necessarily eating the, the food triggers. Mm. And so there's like the Pima Indian story where Pima Indians out in the uh, sort of south west of, of America would, once they were given like the bread and rice and, and all the, the, uh, the staple foods that, you know, were sort of cheap grain-based foods, diabetes rates went from almost zero to like 80, 90% of their population within a couple of generations. So that's, uh, that's pretty scary. And that's sort of like the classic example of how we can have these dormant genes and you put the wrong lifestyle factors in place and boom, you become diabetic very quickly. Yeah, epigenetic factors right. really make a difference. And what this tells us is never to make any assumptions about what's happening physiologically or metabolically to do the work to find the mechanisms. That's how we're going to have the best clinical outcomes. I'm going to have to bring you back, Dr. Brian. And I know. also, <laughs> <laughs> we need, there's so much more to talk about. And this is such an important topic. We will definitely link to all your information in the show notes. But top level, knowing that you have the ears of so many clinicians, coaches and clinicians, is there a takeaway in terms of like what to do with this information that you wish we all knew to serve the populations that need us most? Yeah, for sure. I think that the takeaway is understand that diabetes uh, shows up differently from person to person, and let's focus on the root cause. One thing I didn't get into, um, we also do a root cause evaluation, which is sort of matches up very well with the matrix that you use. And so that's sort of looking at all the different factors like hormones and digestive health and gut health and brain health and and you know, all the other factors that fit onto the matrix and saying, okay, this isn't going to show up one way for everyone. So let's not do population treatment. Let's do individual personalized care for the people in front of us. And so the subtypes are part of that. You know, is this person insulin resistant? Are they do they really just need to focus on burning some fat and changing their body composition? You know, is it, you know, is it an insulin deficiency where we need to start to focus on improving the function of the pancreas or maybe even they need to be on insulin or some medication? So there's different, uh, there's different treatment paths, but it starts with really understanding the person in front of you. Mm, couldn't have said it better myself. It starts with understanding the person in front of you. And that is really the difference between a root cause approach or what I like to think of as root causes, because mm -hmm. there's never just one versus population health, which is where a lot of the studies and the evidence lead us to. So if we're in those clinical situations, focusing on the individual, using the matrix, that's a great starting place. I definitely want to have you back, Brian. I have three different topics rooting around in my head that I want to talk to you about. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sounds good. I'd love to come <laughs> Thank back. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me.
The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 